Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 3. We're already into Episode 3. The year is plowing along like the Polar Express. So this uh, podcast is brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. It's a good place to go if you hear something on today's podcast that you want to follow up on or... uh, Want to engage with? Go to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, the longest .com in the history of .coms, I think. My name is Rick. I'm author of a variety of, of books and resources that are all tied to the Jesus-centered life, which is the name of a book that I uh, wrote about four years ago now, um, culmination of many years of um, living in a Jesus-centered way. Um, first, uh, I trained ministry leaders in the church, how to help people live a Jesus-centered life, and then I eventually wrote a book called The Jesus-Centered Life. And I just finished um, really the the most challenging and rewarding writing project of my entire life. It's called The Jesus-Centered Daily. It's a daily devotional that'll be coming out this fall. Just finished it, and now I'm in the arduous editing process where we go back and forth and fix that, fix this. I'm in that process now, and uh, eventually that'll be coming out in the fall. I'm really excited to share that with you as as we uh, head further into the year. By the way, here's another by the way. uh, If you did not listen to last last week's episode, um, uh, I want to let you know about an event that I'm leading here at our headquarters in Loveland, Colorado, where we sit right at the, the, the edge of the foothills, right of the Rocky Mountains. Our headquarters sits literally, you can walk into the foothills if you walk outside of our front door. And uh, on Febu- from February 19th to the 21st, I'll be leading an event at our headquarters called Reboot. It's for ministry leaders um, who want to learn how to use the skills of uh, applied improv in their ministry leading. So applied improv is a way of engaging people to maximize transformation and growth in them. And I'm leading this sort of three-day retreat, a training retreat here at our headquarters, February 19th through the 21st. So if you're a ministry leader or you're a volunteer um, leading other people and you want to make a bigger impact in how you lead those people and create an environment that is rich, rich, rich with the the, the soil of transformation, uh, then head on over to group.com slash reboot, group.com slash reboot. We'll also make a link to that on our uh, podcast episode page. So this is our last episode uh, exploring the beeline practices that I uh, first explored in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life. It's The beeline practices are the last sort of two-thirds of the book, and they're just a menu of possibilities and uh, like playground equipment for uh, how to live a life that uh, orbits closer and closer to Jesus. Because when that happens, your life changes. The closer you get to him, the more you're radiated by his presence, and the more you become like him. And so uh, these beeline practices were just all over the board, disparate ways of living your life in such a way that you draw near to Jesus and then also live out the spirit of Jesus toward others in your life. 
So this last beeline practice we're going to explore today is called living out of your true name. And uh, if you've uh, listened to any of the last four seasons of this podcast, you'll, you'll know that the theme of identity and who we really are comes up rather often in this podcast. And the reason that it does is because it's the primary thing that Jesus was involved in in his ministry. Yes, he healed people, he performed miracles, but his main focus was on renovating the identity of the people that he was engaging, bringing them from darkness into light, from out of relationship into relationship with God. But the, the, the end game with all of this is a renovated identity, a reclaimed identity, I guess is another one way of, of saying that. So living out of your true name uh, is the last beeline practice in the Jesus-centered life, and it's last for a reason. It's, it's the bookend, I think, of what our life is really all about. Uh, I think our life revolves around two central questions. Um, everything that's important in our life has an attachment to one of these two questions. The first one is, who do I say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? That's not just a, a factual answer, it's a, it's a question that we could answer in a new way every day of our life. Who do I say he is? How am I experiencing him? What is his heart really like? Um, who do I say Jesus is, is the question that draws us into his heart. And then the second question is, who does Jesus say I am? Who does Jesus say I am? Because he, he's not only the one who created us, but he's the one who sees us best. And uh, when we move through our life, we collect what I might call lie barnacles on our identity. It's like a ship moving through the sea collects these barnacles as it, as it uh, sails, sails through the ocean. We collect identity barnacles on, on, our, on, on us as we move through life, and these barnacles are lies about who we are, and eventually if we get enough of them, they cover over who we really are. We forget who we really are. And we need Jesus to tell us who we really are. So the second question is, who does Jesus say that I am? And that's the bookend of life. So that's why this one is the last beeline practice in the book. Um, this is going to be, by the way, a, a bit of a shorter episode. I'm just going to do something different on this episode. I'm going to tell you my own story of uh, discovering and embracing what is true about my identity and therefore my purpose in life. And I'm going to tell my own story as a way to invite you into exploring your story. Um, so I'm going to do that, and then uh, after that, I'm going to give you some simple guidance on how to go about discovering and embracing your own true name, your own true identity. So it's good for us to stand back for just a second, and I just said that the Jesus' primary focus and mission was to target our identity and renovate it and reclaim it. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, in First John, uh, the John, the, uh, who describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved, describes Jesus' primary mission in the world by saying, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. Well, that then raises the issue of well, what is the work of the devil? And I think the work of the devil is to pollute and destroy what is most true about us. He's already been defeated, so the power of death is no longer hanging over us. We can find eternal life in, 
inside of Jesus, inside of our commitment to him. So he's been defeated, and but as a defeated foe, his only mission now is to see if he can destroy us, um, see if he can deceive us so deeply that we self-destruct. So his, his mission is to pollute and attach barnacles to our identity, and when we live out of our false identity, we end up partnering with Satan and his purposes. We end up helping him to kill, steal, and destroy in the world when we live out of a warped or poisoned or toxic identity. So if his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, he's trying to recruit us as allies without our, uh, w- without us knowing what he's really doing. And he does that by trying to undermine and destroy our identity. So the, our search for identity, the search for who I really am, is actually big business in the world. If you think about this, the genealogy is the second most popular hobby in the United States. It's uh, only second to gardening. Uh, It is hugely popular, and now it's becoming even more popular with this plethora of uh, home DNA testing uh, services to help you understand your genealogy for the first time in a detailed way. Um, so the, the, the second most visited websites on the internet, by the way, are genealogy-related websites. The only pornography surpasses the, the, uh, uh, the popularity of genealogy websites on the web. So it's a billion-dollar industry, and it's growing quickly right now, and it's, it's spawned off this sort of DNA testing cottage industry that's become huge now. So um, what's behind all this? Well, I think we have a deep hunger to reattach ourselves to the roots of our identity. We have a deep desire to, un- to, to have more solid footing underneath who we are. So we want to attach ourselves to a bigger story, a generational story that helps us to understand who we are and how we became that way. So I think that's why it's so crucial for us to not only discover uh, and embrace and live out of our true name, but to then enter into our God-given purpose in life because of that. So here we go. Let's. I want to set this up a little bit by uh, first telling you uh, a, a portion of a story from one of my uh, all-time favorite uh, film series. If if you're a friend of mine, you probably already know that I'm a fan of Lord of the Rings and. Um, and, and one of the and I read Lord of the Rings when I was a teenager, and then I reread them, and then I reread them, read all all three books over and over again. They just mesmerized me. And um, the J.R.R. Tolkien had created a fantasy world that was not exactly an allegory for the gospel story. So, you know, C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories are allegories of the gospel story. There's a character in Narnia named Aslan, who is his Jesus. Well, J.R. Tolkien didn't like allegorical stories, and so he didn't create one. He created, though, a story that has all of the gospel embedded in it, sort of hidden and buried in it, uh, and waiting to be discovered. And uh, so one of the storylines in Lord of the Rings, if you're not familiar with it, is that there is a a king— named Aragorn, who is ashamed of his genealogy. He comes from—his his ancestors were uh, asked to fight a big battle uh, back in history, and they got scared, and they gave in to their cowardice, and they 
and they hid. They ran away when when they were asked to enter into the battle, and they and so his family genealogy has this shame and embarrassment buried in it throughout the ages, and so he refuses to step into his identity as the as the uh, rightful king. He instead he takes on uh, sort of a an alternate identity. He calls himself Strider, even though his real name is Aragorn. He calls himself Strider, and he hangs back in the shadows. He's a heroic but lonely and isolated figure in The Lord of the Rings. He's, he's, a, he's a heroic figure because he can't help himself. He's a, he's a brave and heroic man, but he can't get past the shame and embarrassment of, of his own lineage. And so the uh, one major thread in the story that Tolkien wrote was the story of Aragorn coming to embrace his true identity and getting past the the shame of his identity. And there's a kind of a climactic scene in the Two Towers, the 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 middle book of the three books, where the uh, armies of evil are amassed and they're huge in comparison to the armies of of uh, of good. The evil is looks so daunting and so overwhelming that good has no chance. And so the armies of the good are desperate to find a way to counter the overwhelming force of evil. And uh, Strider has refused to assume any kind of leadership role. And at a crucial moment, an older leader, an elf named Elrond, who's hundreds and hundreds of years old, but you would never know it. The elves apparently age slowly. So Elrond arrives at the camp of the forces of good in secret to have a conversation with Aragorn, calls him to the tent. Um, Aragorn is surprised to see him there. Aragorn is in love with Elrond's daughter, whose name is Arwen, and uh, Arwen is dying because goodness in the world is dying. So Elrond has two missions. He wants to recruit Aragorn to assume his rightful place as king and leader of the army, um, and he and he, he wants he wants that because he wants the forces of good to defeat evil, but he also doesn't want his daughter to die, and she will die if evil wins. So Elrond confronts Aragorn in this tent, and essentially asks him to join join the fray as the rightful king. So uh, in this interchange, Elrond hands Aragorn a sword. Now, in fantasy stories like this, swords have names, and this, this sword's name is Anduril. It's this legendary weapon that, uh, the, uh, uh, that Aragorn's ancestors once wielded, and it has a power of its own to, to fight against evil. So Elrond has had this broken sword repaired in secret, and he pulls it out and gives it to Aragorn in this sort of dramatic moment. So Aragorn takes the sword. Uh, it's a legendary sword. It hasn't been seen whole like this in ages. So he's just stunned that he's been given this sword. And then here's what Aragorn says. This is from the, the screenplay of the film. Uh, Sauron that he's about to mention here is uh, the, the wicked wraith who is leading the, the forces of evil. So Aragorn takes the sword and he stares at it and he says... Sauron will not have forgotten the sword of Elendil. 
And this sword is, is a sword that had been used to attack Sauron in the past. And so he says he won't have forgotten this sword. And then he says, the blade that was broken shall return to Minas Tirith, so the, shall return to the capital city. And then Elrond looks him in the eye and says to Aragorn, the man who can wield the power of this sword can summon to him an army more deadly than any that walks this earth. And then he stares uh, deep into Aragorn's eyes, and he says this, put aside the ranger, put aside Strider, become who you were born to be. Um, this is such a powerful moment in the film. It's really the turning point in the whole story. Somehow, this whole story hinges on whether this great and courageous man can move past his polluted uh, identity, um, his identity rooted in the shame and embarrassment and cowardice of his ancestors. Can he move past that into something true about who he is? And he needs an older man to stare him in the face and say, essentially, the world needs you to step into who you really are. You can't piddle around with your false identity any longer. We need you to step up and do what you're created and born to do. And in that moment, something changes in Aragorn, and he um, recognizes that this is a tipping point in his life, and he embraces and accepts his, his purpose and his identity. And that's where the story swings, and this is what changes the whole momentum in this fight of good against evil. And in the end, of course, the forces of good win. But all of it starts there in that lonely tent where an older man challenges Aragorn to step into his, his real identity. And the, um, I, I think that this scene in the film had such power in my life because I had my own... Um, Aragorn moment, my own tipping point in life, where everything rested on whether I would step into my true identity or stay in the captivity of my polluted and toxic identity. So this story um, happened early on in my marriage. I've been married now for... Uh, uh, this year, I've been, I'll have been married for 30 years. But this happened in uh, year five or six, somewhere around in there. My wife and I uh, uh, entered marriage with the uh, baggage of a really dysfunctional upbringing, each of us in our own different way, but we brought all that baggage into our marriage. Maybe you can relate. <laughs> um, but we had significant uh, baggage that was laying underneath the surface that did not get dragged into the light until we were married. It started all coming out because marriage is the most intimate relationship we'll ever experience here on Earth. And that means things get accessed in us that that weren't um, before marriage, and that's what happened. The, some of this stuff would get dredged up in both of us because now we are in, uh, in the most intimate relationship you can have as a human being. And early on in our marriage, as more and more of this the dysfunction in us got dredged up, um, more of the stuff that I had hidden in the darkness and didn't even know I was hiding some of it, but I, I for sure had hidden things in the darkness. More of this stuff uh, saw the light of day. We were more and more having conflict in our marriage. Um, so these conflicts were never physical. They were always just angry, you know, interchanges and intense uh, conversations and lots of hurt and uh, terrible things that we would say to each other, 
And we would always find a way to recover ourselves afterwards. We would always find a way to come back together. But we had one of these intense encounters where there was lots of pain in the encounter. And I remember thinking during the encounter, have we crossed a line in our marriage? Have we crossed over from what is recoverable now? And that frightened me to my core. It felt like death descending on me in the middle of this uh, conflict. And the hard part was that I was supposed to be leaving to go on a three-day trip to a conference where I was one of the speakers, and um, I had a ride coming to pick me up, so I didn't have any flexibility. I knew that my, my ride was coming at a certain time, and so the worst thing possible for me happened. I could not recover or work this out with my wife before my ride showed up. So I, this was pre-cell phone days, so I had to leave, get on an airplane, uh, fly across the country, check into a ho- the hotel, get to the convention center, and I finally found a phone. Again, no cell phone at the time. I finally found a phone and called my wife to see if you know somehow we could work this out over the phone. As soon as she heard my voice, she hung up. I called again. She hung up. I called a third time. She hung up. I realized I was going to spend three days sort of twisting on the stake. Um, uh, it was going to be agony for me uh, to not have worked this out. And, and I didn't know how I was going to speak. I didn't know how I was going to be vulnerable enough to do what I was supposed to do at this event. My, my face was on the brochure, so to speak. And so I just wanted to be anonymous. I wanted to not have to do anything at that point. But I didn't have a choice. I had to do what I was there to do. So my, my uh, solution was to try to make myself invisible at the conference by just sort of hugging the walls as I walked down these crowded hallways, hoping nobody would see me. And um, it was a childlike way to try, to try to deal with the pain that I was experiencing. But as I was doing this one afternoon, I passed by the door, the darkened door to a workshop room, and I just felt so strongly Jesus saying, come into this room with me. So I went into the dark room where nobody was there, closed the door behind me. I had with me a yellow legal pad and my Bible and the, some other stuff that I was with, and I had a pen with me, and I just sensed Jesus saying to me, sit on the floor, get out your legal pad and a pen. I have something I want to say to you. Well, I was so broken inside and so worried and so fearful of having feeling like my wife and I had crossed a line and that maybe we couldn't recover our marriage, and that maybe um, uh, my deepest hopes and dreams were about to be shattered, that I was so broken that um, uh, my, of course, my knee-jerk hope was simply that whatever Jesus had to tell me was going to be some version of, it's all going to be okay. When you get home, she'll have forgotten all about it, and and she won't have a hard time with this anymore, and you'll be able to go on and be okay. That's what I hoped he would say. And so I sat there on the floor and waited for him to speak. Um, And then when he did speak to me, it was one of those moments in life where uh, his voice was like lightning. It was perfectly clear to me. It's so much so that I'm a journalist. I could write down what he said as if I was interviewing someone. Now, this story, uh, you might have heard me tell bits and pieces of this, before um, in a previous podcast, but it's in almost every book I've ever written. 
And the reason that it's in all of my books is because it's, it's kind of like a Bible story that you go back to over and over again, because you, you, you go back to it because there's so much depth in that story that, and there's, you know, like some people go back to read the parable of the prodigal son over and over again, because there's so much richness in that story to be explored. You can go back again and again and discover new things. Well, that's what this story is like for me. The reason I go back to it so many times is that this was a tipping point in my life, and I reference back this, what happened to me in this story over and over and over again in my life. Everything that has changed in me has come from the change that happened in this moment, sitting cross-legged on the floor in a dark workshop room in a forgettable city with my yellow legal pad and a pen. Everything I become, everything I am, every influence I've had came uh, is rooted in what Jesus next said to me. So there I am, hoping he's going to say, everything's going to be okay, Rick. Um, and instead, here's what he said, and I wrote it down as if I was transcribing it. I included this, this whole thing. I, I, I wrote all this down, and then I wrote it word for word and put it in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life. So here's what he said. Rick, you're a quarterback. You see the field. You're squirming away from the rush to find space to release the ball. You never give up. You have courage in the face of ferocity. In fact, ferocity draws out your courage. You want to score even when the team is too far behind for it to matter. You love the thrill of creating a play in the huddle under pressure and spreading the ball around everyone on the team. You have no greater feeling than throwing the ball to hard to a spot and watching the receiver get to it without breaking stride. In fact, you love it most when the receiver is closely covered and it takes a perfect throw to get it to him. You have the same feeling when you throw a bomb and watch the receiver run under it, or when you tear away from the grasp of a defender, or when you see and feel blood on your elbows or knees and feel alive because of it. You love to score right after the other team has scored, but you want to do it methodically, first down by first down, right down the field. You love fourth down. You want to win, but you're satisfied by fighting well. And then I put down my pen, that was it. And then I looked back over what I had written down, and I just couldn't stop crying. I cried and cried. I must have cried for a half an hour in that dark room. Something was released in me. Not the dread of what had happened in my marriage. Um, in fact, if you notice, all that he said to me, there was nothing in there about hope for the future and that everything's going to be okay, and when I get home, um, Bev will have you know dealt with this and moved past it. There was none of that in there. Instead, what he did was name me, and he named me in the most intimate way. So this description may not sound intimate to you, but for me, he was speaking a language that went right to my core. I'd grown up as a little kid playing quarterback. I was drawn to that position in football. I loved playing quarterback. I played football almost every day, and always I was the quarterback. I loved something about the artistry and the, and the influence of that position, but I simply wasn't athletic enough to, to play that position well. Um, in, I, played for, I, I went to school at a very large high school that had won a state championship in football, and I just wasn't athletic enough or good enough to be quarterback on a team like that. But I played 
quarterback all the way through college and intramurals and flag football. And um, I, I found a way to, to continue to, to live out that passion. And then I went into my adult life and that left that behind, obviously. <laughs> you know, I had dreamed of becoming an NFL quarterback, but that dream, even before I became a teenager, was clear that that wasn't going to happen. Um, so I left all of that behind, and I hadn't thought about it for years and years. And here in this darkened room, Jesus speaks to me, and his first words are, you're a quarterback. And then he simply described the, the reason for the passion I had in playing quarterback. And, and he retold my story. He rebranded my identity. He reclaimed who I really am in his description. And uh, something huge, colossal, happened in me in that moment. I felt the presence of something colossal in the room with me, and I felt something colossal had happened in me. When the conference was over, I went home. Um, when I walked in my door, my wife was there to um, greet me, but she, she kept a great distance from me. And she said in a very measured way, I want you to pack a bag, and I don't want you to be in the house um, starting today. I, I want you to find some other place that you can live while we try to work this out. Well, of course, uh, that was devastating, and I had to scramble to figure out, what am I going to do now? And for the next three months, I lived in a, in a friend's basement, and then another friend's basement. Um, and this happened in the fall, and this three months stretched past the holidays. So I spent the holidays alone, um, uh, just weeping every day, uh, wrestling out uh, what was happening in my relationship with my wife, but also trying to wrestle out what does it mean that what Jesus did in my life, sitting on that work, uh, workshop floor, what does it mean now? What do I do? And what happened is that th that in naming me, he gave me a place to stand in the midst of the worst storm of my life. He did not stop the storm. He gave me something solid under my feet to stand on in the middle of the storm, or I certainly would have been toppled over. The only thing that kept me upright during that time was the words he spoke to me on the floor of that workshop room. It gave me the hint and the hope that something could be different, that I had a deeper foundation than simply the dysfunction I inherited from my family. And of course, I, uh, we were both my wife and I were in counseling, and we went to an excellent counselor during this time. And um, the progression from Jesus speaking to me on that workshop floor to the the a culminated in uh, a particular counseling appoint, appointment where where uh, I could feel some of the bile of the dysfunction that had been. Uh, locked down in the darkest places of my soul, it was coming up. It was almost like the feeling that you have when you're about to throw up. That's what I was feeling as as I was talking with the counselor. And this appointment happened to be with both my wife and I with him. We met with him separately, and we met with him together during this time. And this was one when we were together. And there was a moment where he was staring across at me, and he could see something was happening in me. And he said, he, he rushed over to me and knelt in front of me so he could stare into my eyes. And he said, he essentially said, Rick, let it come up. You're loved. 
He just kept saying that, let it come up, you're loved. And then I just, I had a volcano of emotion. I could not stop, not crying, but sobbing. So it was so bad I had to leave the room. And I got in my car and I drove about a quarter of a mile to park my car next to an empty field and I just sobbed. And I sobbed until I couldn't sob anymore. It was literally like something had been expulsed from my soul in that moment. And it was the culmination of what started on that workshop floor. So um, from that uh, volcanic release, um, something had, had uh, changed in me. I had a sense of who I was, and the things that, that were haunting me inside were now in the light, and they didn't hold such power over me anymore. So uh, after three months, my wife asked me to move back in, and then we started our journey all over again, trying to understand who we are in our reclaimed um, state, uh, trying to understand what our relationship would be like now that our identities had both been reclaimed through this process. And I'm still living that path today. Uh, you know, not much has changed. I am still trying to live out of who I really am instead of the deception that I had once lived with that was designed to destroy me. That really is the key to life, is living out of who we really are. That's where all of our influence and impact and, uh, and the power of our, and purpose of our life come from. So that's my story. It's a, it's a, simple, it's a simple story in a lot of ways, but um, I do come back to it over and over again. Uh, in one way or another, every single day of my life, has a tendril that is attached back to this story, because I'm still uh, living out uh, what it means to be, uh, to use a cliche, to be born over again, to be born again. To be born over means to live out your true identity, your kingdom identity, instead of the identity that was handed to you as a broken human being. So, um, that this this story of crisis in my marriage is my story. It's unique. But you have your own story. Um, you have your own captivity, whatever it might be. You have your own um, uh, Aragorn genealogy, <laughs> something deep, deep, deep in you that uh, keeps you locked up in shame or keeps you from becoming the person that Jesus sees you, sees in you when he looks at you. So here's some simple guidance um, for you. I've been helping and training people for years now on um, how to put themselves in a posture or, or a position to uh, have Jesus speak to them their true name or their true identity. And, uh, this is not a formula. It's not a step-by-step -step process. It's simply a way of positioning yourself before Jesus to give him the opportunity to speak out to you what he spoke out to Peter. Remember, um, in uh, Matthew chapter 16, um, in verse 13, uh, Jesus and Peter have an encounter that was, in many ways, like my encounter on the floor of that workshop room for Peter. Let me just read to you this little section, and then um, I'm going to just give you some simple guidance on how to pursue what happens here with Peter for yourself. So starting in verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, then he asked him, well, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. So the first step in this is that Peter names Jesus for who he really is. He not only names him, he embraces his identity. It's, it's Peter's act of faith and love towards Jesus to name him for who he really is. It's a bold and courageous thing that Peter is saying here. It's the first time someone has said publicly, out loud, the truth about who Jesus is. And Jesus is thrilled when he does this. He says to him, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed to this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Wow. What Jesus says, Jesus answers two big questions for Peter, for Simon, who is now Peter, and they're the two big questions we have in life, too. The two questions he answers, answers are, who are you? And what is your purpose in life? And they're both locked up in the name that Jesus gives him. He changes his name from Simon to Peter. Peter is Petros. It's, it's the word for rock. It had never been used as a name before. You can't find the name Peter. Um, from this point back into history, you cannot find the, word, the name Peter because Jesus gave him a name that wasn't a name. <laughs> uh, it would be like calling you Daffodil or something. Jesus called him Rock, Petros. That's your real name, and it's attached to your purpose and identity, and, and you're going to live out that purpose, and the impact is going to ripple out through the ages till this moment right now. This moment between Jesus and Peter is impacting us even now, you and I. The ripple effect is hitting us now because Peter does go eventually to live out his true identity and because of that, the church spreads over the whole world and includes us, you and me now. So this moment of naming uh, changes everything, just like the Aragorn's moment of naming changed everything for him, and just like quarterback changed everything for me. So here's some guidance. Um, if you'd like to explore this for yourself, and let me preface this by saying, um, again, this is no formula or step-by-step -step process. This is just putting yourself in a posture where, where like a child, uh, ready to receive. So this may not, when you do this, uh, don't put too much weight on this. This is not a test of your maturity. It's not a test of anything. It's just like a child innocently asking, um, would you name me Jesus? Would you reveal what's uh, what my true name, my true identity for me? Now, when you do this, um, in the posture of a child, you may not sense anything, and it may not be the time. It may might not be the moment that Jesus chooses to do this for you. So I want to preface this with that, that this is not a performance thing. Uh, this is simply an act of courage on your part to open yourself vulnerably to Jesus and to give him an opportunity. Everything in the kingdom of God works through invitation. That means in order for him to do this in your life, you have to invite it just like Aragorn did, just like I did on the floor of that workshop, um, just like Peter did in responding to Jesus the way he did. There's an invitation there. And so 
this is simply a way to invite Jesus and and uh, and then see what happens. So the first thing is to find a quiet and safe and alone space. And by quiet, I mean guaranteed silence. Like you're you're for sure not going to be interrupted, whatever this space is, whether that's your basement, whether it's on a walk um, uh, where you're totally alone, or maybe you go to an empty church and sit in the empty church and do this. You just need space where you not only are alone, you sense that you're utterly alone and are not going to be interrupted. So that's the first thing. Then, and, and I choose a time when um, you're sort of at low energy, you're not all uh, worked up. Like um, the, the morning typically isn't a good time to try this. When you're gearing up for the day, it's more like a nighttime thing. When you're gearing down from the day and your energy is a bit lower, your soul's a little quieter, your head's not filled with competing arguments, that that everything is slowing down in you. So you're, you're looking for a low-energy time when your heart and mind are quieted. Bring with you a Bible and a pen and something to write on, a pad to write on. Bring those things with you. And uh, when you're in that alone and quiet space, before you engage Jesus about this, First, just pause for a second and recognize that there are other voices in the room besides his. There's your own voice, and there's the voice of his enemy in the room. So what you do first is simply, very like a child, take authority, the authority Jesus has given you, take authority over your own voice, and I would say something literal like, I silence my own voice now, And then you silence the voice of the enemy. You simply say, enemy of God, I silence your voice. You have no permission to speak now. And then you invite. You say, Jesus, I invite only you to speak to me now. And then you simply ask him, Jesus, who do you say that I am? Jesus, who do you say that I am? And then you stop and you rest. You're quiet. You wait for whatever comes. And whatever comes could be uh, a name, a scripture passage, uh, even a, a scripture reference. You don't even know what the scripture, scripture reference is for, so that's why you bring a Bible in case you have to find out uh, where that reference is, what that reference is highlighting. Um, it could be a descriptor. It could be a picture in your head. There's a girl in my uh, uh, home church for young adults who um, uh, shared with me just a month ago that Jesus had revealed to her that her name is Wildflower. She got this picture of a wildflower in her head, and Jesus said, that's you. And then she went on to describe to me all of the ways Wildflower perfectly describes her core identity. It unlocked something for her. Well, all she got was this picture of a wildflower in her head. And then she said to Jesus, what does that mean? And she let him explain what it meant from his point of view. So all of this comes um, when you're in the posture of a child, a child who can simply receive and asks expecting to receive, doesn't have a, an a iota thought in their mind that when they ask their parent for something, the parent is not going to respond. Um, it's, it's just a simple childlike way of putting yourself in a posture of receiving. Uh, a lot of times I'll tell people, think of yourself as a catcher's mitt, just waiting for the ball to come across the plate. You're not working you're not striving, you're not doing anything, you're just still waiting for the ball to hit the mitt. That's what you're doing in this moment. You're waiting. 
and then you write down or draw whatever it is you get. And if it's not clear uh, to you, then you ask Jesus, can you help explain what this means? And you write down whatever you sense. And once you've done this, you ask Jesus, um, who should I share this with? And let him pop into your head a person that can be trusted, that you can go and share this experience with, and the name that you've been given, or the picture you've been given, to get it from the darkness into the light. You share it with someone who can affirm it and embrace it, and maybe even extend its meaning from their perspective. After I got the, this, uh, after after Jesus spoke the word quarterback over me, I went to a, a older mentor of mine and told him the experience that I had. And he was the perfect person to go to because he immediately and fully embraced the truth behind that name. And um, for every uh, uh, for every year after that, whenever I sent him an email, he would respond to that email by first addressing me as quarterback. He somehow, in every email, referenced that name um, every single time. What he was trying to do is undergird that identity and agree with it. Um, so you want a person who can be that kind of person in your life. So let Jesus show you who that person is. Don't just brainstorm it. Ask him, who can I share this with? That person can then be a person who is the first one to undergird and support that identity in you and to come alongside you to, to embrace that identity in you. And that's it. Um, that is the whole process. Again, you might do all of these things and sit and, and sense nothing, just emptiness and silence. And then, like a child, you simply say, okay, Jesus, it's not time. It's not time for me right now. That's okay. I'm going to come back again later. And then follow up and come back again later, just like a child would. Um, I have helped people over the last 15 or 20 years countless times through this same process, and it's extraordinary the impact that this has. So I, I highly encourage you to find a time in the midst of your busy life, if something about what I've described is tugging at your heart now, ex- receive that from the Spirit of Jesus as His prod to, to move in this direction, to find freedom as He names you, as He answers your question, who do you say that I am? Well, uh, to close off, um, I love something. I, I put a quote from one of my author heroes, Walter Wangren, in my book, Jesus-Centered Life. Um, he, Walter Wangren is a stunning writer, and uh, so many things that he's written have really profoundly impacted me. Um, and he was at a, uh, a gathering called Hutchmoot that uh, the singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson holds every year, uh, and he invited Walter Wangren to be his his guest speaker that that one year. And Wangren at the gathering said that we all have two names, the one our parents have given us and the one that God calls us when he's plotting his next adventure. And he says uh, universally, Wangren says, we, we have two creation languages. The first creation language is spoken by God, who spoke everything into being out of nothing at all. And then the second language God gave to Adam first, and it was the language of naming in Genesis 2. Names, says Wangren, are not merely labels. Here's what he says. The thing named is brought into place so it can be known. 
A name establishes a person's relationship with the other named things. The naming action begins to declare the person's purpose, and this naming is powerful. So, it is powerful. The names we embrace are the names we become, and that that should motivate all of us to seek Jesus to discover our true name, because our true name will, will, will be a, a forming influence in who we become. We don't want to hang on to our false identity or our false name, because that is also forming who we're becoming. So our, our name our name really does represent the battleground in our life between the enemy of God who wants to destroy our identity and Jesus who wants to restore our identity. So I encourage you, if this is tugged at you, to, to, simp- to approach all this just like a child, find your quiet space, ask the question, and be the catcher's mitt, and, and catch whatever Jesus sends your way. All right, gang, thanks for listening. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can uh, uh, head over to our website, PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and look for uh, Season 5, Episode 3, if you're looking for links to anything that I've talked about today. Um, and uh, by the way, if you're a, a, a fan or a lover of this podcast and this conversation, please do tell your friends about it. You never know who might need exactly what this episode was about today. So tell your friends about it, send them the link, and uh, extend your love to them by inviting them into an experience that has had an impact on your life. All right, gang, we'll see you again next week. You can subscribe to this podcast on uh, iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll, we'll see you next week.